You know, because it's me, we're back in Acts this morning. Um, so if you just thumb your way to that general part of the Bible, you're going to be hovering over the right spot. We're going to be in Acts 14 today. But before we get to that, I'm just going to give us a, a wee introduction. Whew, okay. Right. Many of you know that before coming on staff here at Crossroads, I spent the bulk of my professional career working as a design and innovation consultant. So now, as you can imagine, I'm in an intensive detox program for office jargon. (laughs) A large part of my work life, like many of yours, I'm sure, has been spent sitting in meetings listening to people say things like this. Okay, team, this is low-hanging fruit. All we have to do here is boil the frog. Let's save our out-of-the-box thinking for a project that will really fill the pipeline. We don't have a dog in this fight. If we get distracted from our core competencies, and if we try and lipstick the pig, we'll get disintermediated. <laughs> Let's just keep everything kumbaya. Sounding familiar to anyone? Well, I'm sorry for you if it is. <laughs> in truth, I'm sure I've inflicted quite a lot of this on my colleagues myself over the years. But this is a new day, a clean slate, a greenfield site. <laughs> Excuse me while I just call my therapist. Anyway... Despite all this jargon bashing, one piece of office jargon that I really hate is actually going to stand us in good stead for our message this morning. It's the supremely annoying phrase, the elephant in the room. If I had 50 cents for every time I've been told or have told someone that there's an elephant in the room, I could take my family to see a real elephant at the zoo every Saturday for a month. But despite the fact that the phrase the elephant in the room is massively overused and totally meaningless to most people, it does at least represent an attempt to communicate quite an important idea. It's an attempt to capture the fact that when we get together with other people, we sometimes ignore or avoid mentioning important problems or controversial issues, not because they aren't obvious, but because talking about them will be politically or socially embarrassing somehow. You know how it is if you're having dinner with a group of friends and someone manages to get a smear of chocolate on their nose. Sometimes someone will have the guts to mention it, hand the person a napkin discreetly. But if not, it becomes the elephant in the room, the fact that everybody recognizes but nobody is prepared to draw attention to. Well, I think there's an elephant in the room that we need to call out at this point in our study of Acts. Last time, you'll remember, we spoke about the shift that takes place at the end of chapter 12. Peter leaves the stage, heading for Rome, and the rest of the book focuses primarily on the ministry of Paul. Now, obviously, Paul's ministry wasn't the only thing that was going on in in the life of the early church in this time. We know that the gospel was going south into Egypt. It's going west along the, coast of North, along the coast of North Africa in the hands of other missionaries. But, and the church in Jerusalem was continuing to grow, so there's lots of other stuff happening. But in God's sovereignty, we've been left this record, the book of Acts, which is composed by Luke, who knew Paul well and traveled with him. And the result is that we're going to be spending quite a bit of time over the next few months with Paul. This is where I think the elephant in the room is sitting. Because for some of us, Paul may be a problem. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but I think it's true. Paul represents a sticking point for many of us in our engagement with the Bible. 
For some of us, Paul is just hard to understand. We struggle with the contrast between the free-reading narrative style of the Gospels and then the dense theology that we often find in Paul's letters. For some of us, though, Paul doesn't just represent a change in style, but also maybe a change in emphasis when we compare him to Jesus. We like Jesus, don't like Paul. Somewhere in the back of our minds, we've just ingested the idea that Jesus spent all his time kind of floating six inches above the ground, talking about love and forgiveness. Whereas we see Paul as this kind of awkward throwback to doctrinal nitpicking and divisiveness. And for some of us, Paul is an actively suspicious figure. He dominates the remainder of the New Testament and massively influences the whole course of Christian theology after him. But he didn't actually see any of the events of Jesus' life with his own eyes. And apparently there were all sorts of things that he believed that Jesus would not have approved of. So what should we do with these doubts and questions? Well, my suggestion is that we go for a bit of elephant hunting. I know this is going to go down well with the Michigan audience. (laughs) Think about that. I think what a big one you could get. This isn't the kind of stuff that does us any good parked in a corner of the room, is it? And the passage we have in front of us invites us to tackle it head on. So you remember last time we left Paul and Barnabas halfway through the first missionary journey to Galatia. In chapter 13, they visited Cyprus and Sidian Antioch, and now in chapter 14, we're going to find out what happened to them when they reached the remaining cities on their itinerary, which were Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. So will you stand with me now in anticipation of what God has to teach us here? We're going to read Acts chapter 14. I'll start at verse 1 and just run it through to verse 20. So Acts chapter 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform wonders and signs. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him. He saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. But after the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back to the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Okay, so that's what we have to work with. So take a seat. Okay, so here we go, elephant hunting. And I think the first part of our passage gives us a really clear sight of the target. Let's paraphrase this a little. Paul and Barnabas left city in Antioch and arrived in Iconium, which was a nice, quiet town where Jews and Gentiles were living side by side in peace and tolerance with their own time-honored religious customs. Paul is invited to speak at the local synagogue, and his message plunges the town into conflict. Two opposing camps emerge, one made up of Jews and Gentiles who accept the gospel, and another made up of those who oppose it. The anti-gospel faction are so enraged by Paul's message and the fact that many of their fellow citizens embrace it that they resort to character assassination in verse 2 and ultimately devise a plot to kill Paul in verse 5. And so it seems that without very much work at all, we found conclusive evidence that Paul is taking Christianity down a new but depressingly familiar path of intolerance and cultural imperialism that seems a million miles away from the message of Peter and the other apostles who really knew Jesus. Well, that's certainly one way to read it. But that doesn't mean it's the right way to read it. If we want an accurate understanding of any period of history, we have to work harder than simply pasting a plausible 21st century reconstruction onto past events. We have to try to put ourselves in the context and understand what we're reading about through the eyes of the people who were there. And if we test the idea, this hypothesis, that Paul's ministry actually bore no relation at all to the ministry of Jesus and Peter and the other apostles, then the experiences of the people recorded in the rest of the book of Acts speak against us. First of all, think about the content of Paul's message. You'll remember in Acts chapter 13 that Luke gave us that lengthy transcript of Paul's sermon in City in Antioch. Well, turns out that's not a one-off for Luke. He provides a similar lengthy transcript of Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. And when we examine it, we find it was the same sermon, even down to using the same Old Testament illustrations. The two men were absolutely aligned in their explanation of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Even the reactions they got weren't that different. In both cases, a great number of people believed, and then opposition arose. In Peter's case, one of the young believers, Stephen, was actually killed. So it isn't true to say that Paul took the gospel down some new divisive direction in Iconium. He taught what Peter taught, and he saw pretty much the same results that Peter saw. And in fact, when we start to get into it, we find that the similarities between Paul's ministry and Peter's ministry are overwhelming. In our passage in verse 3, did you see the Lord confirmed the message of his grace by enabling Paul and Barnabas to perform signs and wonders? 
Well, back in chapter 5, verse 12, we learned that Peter and the apostles also performed signs and wonders. In chapter 9, you might remember Peter's journey from Lydda to jo- and Joppa, sorry, his, learn- his journey to Lydda and Joppa, and the way in which he was enabled to heal a paralyzed man and raise a dead woman to life. It was almost as if we were transported back to the earthly ministry of Jesus, wasn't it? As if we kind of squint at those stories, it's like we can see it's almost more Jesus than Peter. It's Jesus doing the healing more than kind of Jesus working through Peter. And now in our passage, it's the same thing with Paul. In verses 8 to 11, with his healing in Lystra, who is it that comes to mind when Paul makes this lame man walk? Well, it's Jesus, of course. So to illustrate this, maybe we could think about Paul and Peter like students of a great painter. When you go to a gallery and you see a painting labeled of the school of Rubens or of the school of Titian, we recognize in those students the touches of the master who taught them. Well, Paul and Peter's ministry has that same character. It didn't shout Peter. It didn't shout Paul. It shouted Jesus. To me, it's really striking that the crowd in Lystra tried to worship Paul and Barnabas. And they replied, saying, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. Do you remember that exactly the same thing happened to Peter in chapter 10, when Cornelius bowed down before him? And Peter said, stand up, I'm only a man myself. And we noticed in the last sermon, the similarities between Paul's confrontation with that guy Elymas, the Jewish sorcerer in Cyprus, and Peter's confrontation with Ananias and Sapphira. So it seems to me that far from stressing a change in direction from the ministry of the apostles to the ministry of Paul, Luke is bending over backwards to show us that in the eyes of the people who were actually there, the overriding experience was one of consistency. Paul didn't come off as a contrast to Jesus, far from it. To the people at the time, he came off as a continuation of Jesus. And that's maybe why this is the first passage in the New Testament where we hear Paul referred to as an apostle. Did you see it actually happens twice? In verse 4 we read, The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles, Paul and Barnabas. And then picking it up again at verse 13, we read, The priest of Zeus brought bulls and wreaths to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes. Now, clearly, we could take this whole thing a step further and say, well, Luke thought that Paul was legit, but Luke was one of Paul's friends. So maybe he was biased. But we've got to see there that that has got problems of its own. If Luke was trying to help Paul grab hold of the original Jesus movement and twist it in a direction that Jesus himself never intended, well, we'd expect to see Luke making some necessary adjustments to Jesus' teaching in the gospel that he wrote, wouldn't we? But there's no evidence of that in the documents at all. And we also have to recognize the fact that Luke isn't the only significant author in the New Testament. We've got Matthew, Mark, Peter, and John all of whom demonstrated a determination to maintain that authentic message of Jesus and to challenge anybody who distorted it. John's second epistle is written specifically for that purpose. But in none of these authors do we find any, any desire to correct the teaching of Paul. In fact, it's quite the reverse. In Peter's second epistle, he says that Paul's writings are scripture. 
So the reality that we're left with after exposing and shooting this elephant in the room is that the conflict that broke out in Iconium was not the product of some unhelpful personal spin applied to the gospel by Paul. It wasn't the product of the messenger at all. It was the product of the message itself. Jesus told his followers that he didn't come to bring peace, but division. That's the reason why the city of Iconium was thrown into chaos. The gospel itself is divisive. So where does that leave us? Well, you could say that we've just jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. We may have dealt with one major objection to Christianity, that Paul distorted the original message of Jesus somehow. But now we find ourselves facing another, that Christianity, like every other major religion, is a toxic influence in the world because it gives people a reason to hate and distrust each other. That certainly seems to be what happened in Iconium. The gospel just barged its way into this delicate ecosystem of relationships where people from different backgrounds had learned to like each other and get along well together. And it just blew the whole thing apart, dividing the community into two competing factions. And our instinct when we see this is to say, well, hold on a minute, this can't be good. And if there's a good God out there, this can't be what he intends. It doesn't feel right. Surely what God wants is for all of us just to get along. Well, certainly there's some truth in that instinct. If we go right back to the Garden of Eden and try to discern God's heart for human relationships there, we see that God really does love peace. Before the fall, Adam and Eve present us with a model of peace, with a model of cooperation, of unity despite diversity. In fact, it's one of the most striking things about the whole story of the fall, that division is the immediate result when Adam and Eve pushed God out of the driving seat of their lives. Do you remember Adam's pathetic answer when God asked him if he's eaten from the tree? The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Adam goes from selfless love to selfish abdication of responsibility in a single jump. And that's the consistent message of the whole Bible. Broken relationships, division in marriages, in families, and in society are the fruit of God's absence. They flow directly from our determination to be God's ourselves. But if God is for harmonious relationships then, and he longs to restore them, why is it that the gospel itself, which is supposed to do the restoring, is the divisive influence it seems to be here in our story? Some people would say, Well, it's because the gospel is crammed with nitpicking rules and obscure theological distinctions. I heard a silly story once about two students who meet at a freshman event and realize that they come from the same state. The first student asks the second, did you go to church growing up? And the second student replies, yes, I did. My family are conservative Baptists. Wonderful, says the first student. Are you progressive conservative Baptists? Yes, we are, says the second student. How wonderful. I feel like we're long-lost brothers. Are you free-will progressive conservative Baptists? <laughs> yes, we are, says the first student. I wonder whether our parents know each other. Is your, part, is your church part of the free-will progressive conservative Baptist conference? Yes, it is, says the second student. We're part of the Eastern chapter. Oh, says the first student, <laughs> looking for someone else to talk to. We're part of the Western chapter. My pastor tells me the Eastern free-will progressive conservative Baptist conference are heretics. <laughs> 
Sadly, that story does capture a nugget of truth about Christians and Christianity, doesn't it? The history of the church shows us countless examples of believers straining out gnats but swallowing camels, to use Jesus' words. We excel in forming parties and in rushing to the barricades without thinking or praying issues carefully through for ourselves. The non-Christian world knows us as tactless, outspoken, and argumentative. And where that's true, we have to repent of it. But the question we have to resolve here is whether this kind of nitpicking attitude is the reason why the gospel divided the community in Iconium. And if we let the gospel itself, and not our experience of flawed believers, shape our thinking, well, the answer's got to be no, hasn't it? In fact, it's striking to me, given the questions that we started with about Paul at the beginning, it's striking that Paul is the person in our Bibles who really nails this issue for us once and for all. Just listen to his words in Romans about one of the hot topics that was dividing the church in his time, the question of whether or not believers should eat food that had been sacrificed to pagan gods. He says, Let's therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes anyone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And when it comes to relating to other people with different views in our culture, Paul's teaching is equally striking. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone, he says. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So do you see that though it may be common for Christians to have a judgmental, nitpicking attitude, it's a gross distortion of the gospel that we claim to trust. St. Augustine had the right idea in his summary of the Bible's teaching here. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. That's what we're going for as a church. And though we will inevitably make some mistakes as we try to apply it, we're determined to maintain that stance, thinking the best of others and bending our practice to accommodate others because we believe that the alternative dishonors Jesus. So why is it then that the gospel caused division in Iconium? Well, it isn't because God himself didn't value peace. It's a fundamental part of the creation that he's trying to restore. It isn't because the gospel is intrinsically nitpicky and judgmental. The reason is that the gospel forces all people to make a choice. We saw it in chapter 13, and we see it again here. The gospel accommodates all sorts of different people doing Christianity all sorts of different ways, and it urges us to live peacefully with all people, loving and serving them, irrespective of their decision about Jesus. But it does demand that decision. It demands a response to Jesus' claim that he is the rightful owner and ruler of this world, that the idols that we have erected in his place are worthless, and that we can become what we were made to be only if we trust him. That's the claim that divided the city of Iconium. And that's the claim that we now need to assess to check if its importance justified the risk that the city would be divided like this. 
You see, if nitpicking details were the only reason that Paul had to drive a wedge between these people, I think our instinct that keeping the peace is more important, I think that serves us well. No one has the right to wade into a peaceful society and stir up division needlessly over trivial issues. But there are some issues that are more important than preserving the peace of a community. The city of St. John's in Newfoundland was peaceful and prosperous until someone arrived with the news that their cod fishing industry had reduced the stocks on the Grand Banks to the point of collapse and that in a matter of years there would be nothing left to catch. Then there was division, but was it worth it? Yes, it was. The city of Cape Town in South Africa was relatively peaceful behind its concrete walls and barbed wire fences until Nelson Mandela stirred up division by calling attention to the injustice of apartheid. Was that worth it? Yes, it was. You see, preserving the peace of a community is certainly good, but that doesn't make it an ultimate good. The real question for us then as we seek to understand the events that took place in our, cha- in our chapter is the question of whether the gospel justifies, sorry, whether the importance of the gospel justifies the social consequences of preaching it. And that's the question that I think we see resolved in the next city that Paul and Barnabas visited. It's the city called Lystra, which we read about in verses 8 to 20 of our passage. So what do we know about Lystra? It's a smaller town than Iconium, located about 20 miles to the south. It didn't have a synagogue. So Paul and Barnabas just jumped straight into sharing the gospel with the local Gentile population. You might remember in the last sermon, we talked about how thoroughly prepared Paul was for these mission trips and how flexible he was. He adapted his manner of presentation to suit each audience. And we can really see that here in this town of Lystra. In verse 11, we find that the people who lived there spoke a regional dialect called Lyconian. Paul and Barnabas had done enough homework to be able to understand it and presumably to be able to speak it too. And when we come to Paul's message in verses 14 to 19, we see that he adopts a totally fresh set of tactics to suit this new audience. In city in Antioch, he was preaching to Jews, and so he used that typical Jewish chiastic presentation style, creating a grand symmetrical argument with Jesus at the center and then warning people about the dangers of rejecting him. He built the whole thing on a very Jewish set of assumptions. He assumed that everyone in the audience was comfortable with the Old Testament, so he just dived straight in with Moses and David, assuming that everybody is cool with that. But in Lystra, it's totally different. Paul just ditches the whole Jewish presentation style completely, and he opts for something much more Western. Lystra was a Greek city, and the Greeks, like us, were linear thinkers. So Paul gave them a linear presentation of the gospel, which actually feels really familiar to us. His message sounds almost like a modern political speech. He begins with the main point, that God is calling all people everywhere to repent, and then he backfills it all with supporting arguments. Now, there is a question here in Lystra about whether Paul's flexibility goes too far. Some people argue that he goes beyond simply adapting his style of delivery and starts adapting the message itself. They point to the fact that there's no explicit mention of Jesus in these verses at all. And then they contrast that to the message in Sidian Antioch, where Paul was completely focused on Jesus. 
And taking it to its logical conclusion, some people say that we should be prepared to do the same thing and that we should avoid talking about Jesus if we're in an environment which isn't yet ready to handle him. But I think if we brought that interpretation of Acts to Luke, who wrote it, I think he would be horrified. And that's the challenge for us when we read our Bibles, isn't it? Our task is to understand what the original author wanted to communicate, not to push plausible hypotheses on the text from a distance. Luke is providing us with documentary coverage of the life of the early church in this book of Acts. He's not like a court stenographer trying to record every single word that was said. He's trying to give us a feel for the important developments in the story. So in chapter 13, we have Paul preaching the gospel with Jesus right at the center where he belongs. Then in chapter 14, verse 7, Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas then went on to these Laconian cities of Lystra and Derby and preached the gospel. In fact, that word gospel that we have in verse 7 is exactly the same word that's translated good news in verse 15 when Paul introduces his sermon in Lystra. So do you see we've got no liberty to make his message contradict the message in Sidian Antioch? We know the basic burden of it on this mission trip. His goal in chapter 14 is simply to highlight the points of difference from chapter 13. And when we look at those points of difference, I think we can see the reason why Paul felt justified in risking social upheaval by preaching like this. Just listen to what he says to the people in Lystra. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. You remember the background to all of this. When Paul and Barnabas arrive in Lystra, a man who's never walked before in his life is healed. It's one of Jesus' signature moves, isn't it? And everybody notices immediately the whole town is jumping up and down, looking for a supernatural explanation. They think that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes. That's the only way that they could rationalize just the enormity of what they'd seen. The local priest of Zeus thinks that he's maybe been singled out for an unscheduled inspection by head office. So he rushes in with bulls and wreaths and goodness knows what else. And it's in response to this that Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes and make this proclamation. They say, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news. And what was the good news? It was a summons to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The worthless things that Paul refers to here are the bulls and the reeds and the religious beliefs that the people of Lystra were trying to push on them. And Paul's message to them, the news that he brings them, is that all of it is worthless. The message he had to share was much like that message that came to the city of St. John's in Newfoundland when the Grand Bank's cod fishery collapsed. Paul is telling them, look, people, what you're building on here, your whole worldview that you're depending on is worthless. There's nothing underneath it. Paul is sounding the alarm and saying, don't just carry on with this because you've been doing it all your life and you don't know any other way. That won't help you if it all turns out to be built on sand. And what is it that gives him the confidence to preach in this way? 
Well, it's his conviction that the God of the Bible is different. Paul thinks the gods of Greece and the God of the Bible belong to completely different categories. He urges the people of Lystra to turn from worthless things to the living God. Now, at this point, some of us will probably still want to critique Paul for coming in and disturbing the peace. After all, it was only Paul's opinion that his God was living and that the gods of Greece were worthless, wasn't it? Paul believed that the Greek gods were idols, that they were man-made projections of human needs and fears. But couldn't the Lystrans have been forgiven for saying exactly the same thing about Paul's God, that he too was simply a man-made projection of human needs and fears? And if this whole thing simply reduces to a battle of my opinion about something invisible is better than your opinion about something invisible, perhaps it would have been better for Paul to keep quiet. But Paul wasn't unprepared for that question. And if he hadn't had an answer to it, I don't think he would have been there. He justifies the challenge he makes to the Lystrans, first by calling their attention to the seriousness of the decision that they need to make, and second, by calling their attention to the evidence that's available to help them make it. You might know in the Greek religion, there was a God for almost everything. They had gods of love, fame, wine, war, Justice, fertility, night, day, harvest, victory, and so on ad infinitum. And so the addition or omission of individual gods didn't seem terribly important to them. They figured that they had most of the important bases covered. And when the stakes are low like that, it makes the argument for keeping the peace all the stronger. There's no point dividing over something that doesn't have enormous implications. But do you see at the end of verse 15... Paul questions whether that logic really applies to his message. When we ask Paul the question that a Greek would naturally ask about any new God, what is your God the God of? Paul responds by telling us that the God of the Bible is the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The God of the Bible isn't just a God of fertility or fame or harvest or victory. The God of the Bible is the God of everything. He leaves every other God facing unemployment. So do you see how this raises the stakes? This is not just like deciding to make a minor addition to an already crowded pantheon of gods. If the God of the Bible really exists, this is about deciding to grasp or miss the entire point of our existence. The implications of failing to recognize the God of the Bible are enormous And that's the first reason why Paul thinks this debate is worth having. And in practice, I think that we show that we agree with Paul all the time in other areas. I can't imagine any of us have ever spent a sleepless night wondering whether McDonald's is superior to Burger King. The reason? Well, it's just not that important. Well, as long as you don't work for them, it isn't. But have we lain lain awake wondering whether we're in the right job or dating the right person or taking the right medical treatment? You bet we have, because we know that even if the evidence is hard to interpret, the implications are enormous. We're justified in thinking seriously about issues and inviting other people to think seriously about issues that have serious consequences. But Paul has more to share here than just a word of, word of, sorry, about a word of caution about the scale of the implications if the God of the Bible is real. He believes that we can know that the God of the Bible is real. 
He thinks we have evidence that the God of the Bible is real. In fact, he believes that we ourselves are evidence that the God of the Bible is real. And this brings us into verse 17. Luke gives us a pricey here of a piece of logic we see develop more fully when Paul preaches in Athens in Acts 17, and more fully still in Romans chapter 1. Paul tells us that the creation itself speaks to us about the existence of the living God. This God has not left himself without testimony, says Paul. We see his kindness in every breath that we take. The fact that the world exists in a stable form and that in this vast, vast, inhospitable vacuum of space, we live on this tiny jewel, this world that supports life, this world that gives us a taste of what it means to be created by allowing us to be creative. All that points up and out to the God who made it. As David says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. This is what we call the doctrine of general revelation, the idea that creation itself speaks to every human being about where we come from and who we come from. I wonder how you respond to this. I think there are two mistakes that we can fall into here. On the one hand, I think it's possible to make way too much of our ability to hear God speaking in the natural world. It saddens me sometimes when I hear people say that they don't go to church or don't read the Bible because they're the kind of people who find God in nature. Have you heard that? It saddens me because God has gone out of his way to say so much more. God believes that our need for additional information about him is so critical that he became a man to provide it. And so although God has spoken to us in many different ways and in various other places, he tells us that in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Yes, it's wonderful to be able to see the creator in the creation, but isn't it more wonderful still to be able to see Jesus, the creator himself, directly? And because Paul is preaching the gospel here, we all know that that's where he's going, don't we? Jesus is the centerpiece, not nature. That's where he went in city and Antioch, and we better believe that's where he's going in Lystra too. However attuned to God's character we are, however much we learn to see that character emerging through the mist as we experience the amazing world in which God has placed us, we will never hear it saying to us, Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Only the Bible cuts through to that level of clarity. But you see that it's also possible to make way too little of our ability to hear God speaking in the natural world. In Romans 1, Paul argues that though creation only offers us partial knowledge of God, that knowledge should still be enough to produce thanks and worship in us. As a society, we've poured thousands of man years and billions of dollars into creating miraculous technologies, but they're all dwarfed by the complexity of just a single cell in the human body, let alone by the miracle of consciousness and everything else that we can do that occurs when you put all those cells together. 
Our lives, my life and your life, they are the most extraordinary thing for light years in every direction from here. If we could only look at ourselves with the same amazement that a NASA scientist would experience if they discovered a world like ours somewhere out there in the depths of space, it would be like the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, only 10,000 times more intense. What we have, what we are, is so rare. It's so wonderful. And there's a debt of gratitude that should go with that. Creation, even in its fallen state, lifts our eyes up to ask, where did all this come from? And whom should I thank for it? Now, I know that not all of us feel that way. And Paul actually acknowledges that in Romans. It's true, he says, that we will be held to account for what we did or failed to do with this obligation to thanks and worship that comes from the natural world. But he freely acknowledges that not all of us feel it. In Romans 1.21, Paul tells us that the sensation of being summoned to wonder and worship that we experience in creation can become past tense for us. But as much though it's wonderful, it's kind of inconvenient, isn't it? It doesn't suit us to be walking around with this sense of indebtedness to some unknown creator. It doesn't work if our hearts want to be gods themselves. And so we suppress that truth to the point that we can't hear it anymore. I think C.S. Lewis captures this truth really poignantly in The Magician's Nephew. I wonder whether you remember this. Towards the end of the book, the heroes of the story, two children, Diggory and Polly, find themselves witnessing the creation of the world of Narnia. It's an amazing passage. Lewis imagines this blank, uncreated world into which Aslan steps and begins to sing. And as he sings and the notes change and intensify, the landscape is shaped into hills and valleys and the ground erupts with grass and trees and ultimately with animals. Throughout the story, the children are accompanied by Diggory's uncle Andrew, the magician referred to in the title of the book. But his experience of this creation event is very different from that that the children have. Listen to how Lewis describes it. When the great moment came and the beast spoke... Uncle Andrew missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun to sing, long ago when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song, and he had disliked that song very much. It made him think and feel things that he did not want to think and feel. And then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lion, he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make himself believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo in our own world. Of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. (laughs) Uncle Andrew did. Soon he could hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he'd wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard only barkings, growlings, bayings, and howlings. That is the spiritually deafened state that Paul was speaking into in Lystra. But he had a message of hope for the people who lived there. 
he had good news. He told them it was possible to know this God, to reconnect with the object of our childlike wonder at the natural world, even if the sensation itself is only a distant memory for us now. The gospel can undo the slow process by which we've persuaded ourselves that everything around us is a mindless accident. It can take us back to the door that stood open before us when we first looked out and heard creation whispering the name of the creator. And it's because of this good news that Paul was willing not only to cause division over it, but ultimately to be stoned and almost killed over it. You see, it's true that these towns did have a measure of peace before the apostles arrived. It's true, Jews and Greeks were getting along, living their lives probably much like we are, practicing their customs, earning their livings, caring for their families in a relatively tolerant society. But do you see that all of this is so thin and fragile when it's built on human strength alone? There wasn't anything in these towns that could nourish the souls of these people. There weren't any answered prayers. There weren't any lives transformed and turned around by the power of the Spirit. There wasn't anything to turn to when life fell apart. There wasn't the strength, the peace, the sweetness of being forgiven and welcomed back into a relationship with the God who made them. And Paul offered them all of that in the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are so small and we speak to you of this tiny speck floating in just the unimaginable vastness of space. And yet, God, we hear you calling to us and telling us that we are precious, that we are your children, that you have made us and that your eye is focused here. Lord God, you have made us with this unique gift of being able to reflect on the world that you've made. And we pray so much that you would open our ears, God, that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to hear you calling. And God, we pray that in your grace, you would just draw out that answer of wonder and worship and apology for all the wrong that we've done. And God, that you would help us to kneel at your feet. In Jesus' name.